Welcome to the Vincentian Heritage Podcast, a selection of readings on Vincentian history, spirituality, and praxis to help sustain the members of the Vincentian family in our shared efforts to live out the mission, vision, and values of St. Vincent de Paul. This week's podcast is entitled Vincent the Alchemist, published in 1999. It was written by Reverend Jack Melito, CM. It is read by David Edward Sims. Vincent had one excursion, incomplete, if indeed it was real, into the pseudoscience of alchemy. In the first of his two letters to Monsieur de Comet, he recounted descriptions of his activities with his first Barbary slave master, himself an unsuccessful alchemist. The historicity of the experience is beside the point here, but it might stand as an image of the apostolic career of Vincent. Paradoxically, while his experience in alchemy was inconclusive, even a failure, there was alchemy of another sort at work that caused many of the successes of his subsequent life. Alchemy is a pseudoscience that until the 18th century had its zealous adherents. It was a body of lore driving the search for a mysterious element that would transmute base metals into gold. For the materialist, the end product was literally the actual metal. For those with a more mystical bent, the element pursued was a marvelous substance, whether solid, like the philosopher's stone, or an elixir. Either of these could bring such intangible boons as success, wealth, and the like. Vincent's secretary, Brother Bertrand du Corneau, first hit upon the analogy in commenting to Canon St. Martin, the discoverer of the long-hidden Comet letters. Adverting to the alchemy references in the letter, the brother indicated that Vincent's Tunisian experience as described indeed transformed the saint's surroundings within which he turned evil into good, the sinner into the just man, slavery into freedom, hell into paradise. He discovered the Philosopher's Stone. The application is too narrow, for the metaphor has broader possibilities relative to the whole of Vincent's activities. The saint did indeed have a lifelong magical touch that transformed many of the works he directed. Take the transformation of San Lazar, for instance. At the time, this was an ancient priory, an almost abandoned edifice that presented an aspect of lamentable decay and housed a community of only 11 residents. Its prior, Adrian Le Bon, offered it to Vincent, but the saint repeatedly refused it because its size exceeded the needs of his congregation, and more so, it was inappropriate to its lifestyle. However, after his friends prevailed on him with the right reasons to accept the offer in 1632, he undertook to make the best use of it as the headquarters of his subsequent ministry, despite the high costs of physical renovation and maintenance. In a short time, it became a veritable Noah's Ark, as he called it, for all the guests who would benefit from its hospitality. As Cost noted, Vincent was the life and soul of the house, and the force of his personality made it the center of intense religious life, whose influence was to make itself felt over the whole of France and even other countries. Saint-Lazare indeed might be considered the laboratory where the alchemist partially plied his trade, where he manipulated the common elements to transform them into something precious. 
Thus, as the center of education, it was the matrix out of which came his labors to educate and to reform the clergy of France. Vincent was convinced that reform of the church would not happen unless there was renewal among the clergy. The good effects of the missions among the people would not last, he knew, if there were no zealous parish priests left behind to nurture the benefits. For this reason, he devoted enormous energy to modes of formation suitable for his time. In addition to the formation of his own missionaries, whom he moved from the College des Bonnes Enfants with the acquisition of Saint Lazare, he opened a residence as a place where diocesan clerics, before and after ordination, could come for retreats and renewal, and where ordinance, in preparation for orders, received instruction in ecclesiastical and spiritual subjects. Saint Lazare was the site of another agency of renewal, the Tuesday Conferences. They were the response to requests by worthy priests who were looking for some nourishment of their priesthood. Accordingly, Vincent admitted to the conferences only the cleric who lived an exemplary life and committed himself to continue that example back at his parish. The ideal proposed to the member was to honor the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, his eternal priesthood, his holy family, by procuring the glory of God in the ecclesiastical state in their own families, in the poor, and even in poor country folk. Whatever precedents of this custom there were in other times and places, Vincent recognized the present as the providential moment. It was to this poor little congregation, he told his missionaries, that God was pleased to turn in this century to establish and extend the practice of conferences to clerics on the virtues of their state, not only as an excellent remedy for good priests exposed in the service of the soul to the corrupt atmosphere of the world, but also to assist them to perfect themselves in their own profession." And out of this personal experience of the effects on the clergy, Vincent declared that there is nothing so touching, nothing that moves me so deeply, nothing of all that I hear, read, or see that goes to my heart like these conferences. So remarkable were the effects of the conferences on the clergy that Vincent was often asked by authorities to recommend participants who would be worthy candidates for bishops. Another dimension of Vincent's labors on behalf of the clergy was the reformation of preaching. The style of much contemporary preaching had become secularized, bombastic, and artificial. Allusions to classical authors and the use of Greek and Roman fables were a vain parade of learning and a far cry from simple proclamation of the Word of God. Even when the scriptures were used, the interpretations were often capricious, esoteric, or far-fetched. Vincent asked his missionaries, how many do we see converted by all those methods that are now popular and fashionable? They always pass over men's heads, simply raise a ripple, touch only the surface, a little noise, and that is all. Vincent joined his voice to others in calling for a return to simplicity in preaching. He began at home with his own confreres in promoting what he called his little method, simplicity and directness in form, in language, in attention to the audience. 
Kost's assessment of Vincent's contribution was that, by his teaching, advice, and example, he succeeded in inspiring all those who were brought into contact with him and with his own love for the little method. If to this direct influence be added that which he exercised indirectly by his own priests in missions and seminaries and the members of the Tuesday conferences, of whom Basuet was one, there need be no hesitation in counting him among the chief reformers of preaching in the 17th century. Although Saint-Lazare, indeed, was a fruitful matrix of reformation in the clergy, Vincent's touch was not limited to the mother house, but extended beyond its walls. These works reflected his gifts for enlisting collaborators to address the religious and social ills of his age. First of all, the wretched spiritual conditions of the poor country people touched Vincent's heart. The major religious orders and other clergy cared for city dwellers, but the peasants suffered serious neglect. Thus, on his part, the saint from the beginning settled on evangelizing the poor country people as the focus for his new community of men. It was a special calling, he reminded his missionaries. Our Lord asks us to preach the gospel to the poor. There is no company in the Church of God whose inheritance is the poor and which devotes itself so wholly to the poor as never to preach in large cities. That is what missionaries profess to do. It is their special mark to be, like Jesus Christ, devoted to the poor. Accordingly, the congregation faithfully pursued that missionary calling. The blessings drawn down on clergy and people were of the kind that one bishop typically and gratefully expressed, whereby the missionaries are presently doing in my diocese more than if I were given a hundred kingdoms. At the same time, the saint utilized the zeal of the Tuesday conference members by offering them opportunities to give missions, working either with each other or with members of the congregation. They used many of the practices in vogue with the congregation—sermons, general confessions, reconciliations, catechizing—and followed the same simple style of the little method as prescribed by Vincent for his own confreres. The missions of the Tuesday conference members differed in that many of them took place in the cities at court or in other such places rather than in the country. For this reason, Kost observes, they were useful in that they happily complemented the work of the congregation of the mission. With the help of these two societies, St. Vincent was enabled to realize in all their fullness the words of Jesus Christ, Evangelare poperibus misit me. He has sent me to preach the good news to the poor, which he adopted as the motto of his company. The poor are not only to be found in country places, but also in cities, and Jesus Christ preached to both townspeople and villagers. In the world of the laity, Vincent transformed the landscape of charity by his practice of engaging and managing numerous collaborators who would address the physical needs of the poor. The confraternities of charity were a good example. The story of their beginnings is well known. As parish priest at Châtillon, he learned while vesting for Mass about the plight of a certain poor, sick family that was in immediate danger. 
He touched on it in his sermon, with the result that after Mass, there was an overwhelming response by the parishioners who sent out to the house with food and medicines to minister to the family. Vincent recognized in this reaction the latent desire in people to reach out in charity to others in need, but that if efficiently managed, resources could be better used. I suggested to all these dear, good people, he told his daughters of charity later, whose charity had induced them to visit the family, that they should take it in turn, day by day, to cook for them, and not only for these, but also for other cases that might arise. Almost immediately after the event, a number of women who were interested in continuing the work met with the saint to inquire about the best way to help the poor and sick of the parish. And within three months of activity, they found organized ways of helping, whereby Vincent could draw up a detailed set of rules for the group that he would call the Confraternity of Charity. The growth of the confraternities was facilitated by the priests of the mission, part of whose direction for each mission in a parish was to establish a confraternity. As the priests of the Tuesday conferences came to complement in the city the missionary work of Vincent's confreres in the country, so the confraternities, to which the cities did not seem congenial, eventually moved into the city and attracted women of the upper classes. Although not Vincent's direct idea, the confraternities owed their urban beginnings to this zeal. Suggested by a zealous widow, Madame Gousseau, as a service to the poorly served sick of the Paris hospital, the Hotel Dieu, Vincent was at first slow to respond, particularly on the score that he was reluctant to interfere with the current management of the institution, not to use his scythe in another man's field, as Abelie put it. However, once the Archbishop of Paris, at Madame Gousseau's behest, urged him on, Vincent saw the proposal as the will of God and was immediately responsive to cooperating with finding a way to serve the sick poor of the Hotel Dieu. He soon consulted his first volunteers to plan the management of their good works. A second meeting attracted a few others. And soon after, there was a large multitude, as Abeli describes their immediate growth and the quality of their membership. The virtues and example of these first women attracted several others, so that soon more than 200 women had enrolled, even some from the nobility, such as presidents' wives, countesses, marchionesses, duchesses, and princesses and all considered it an honor to offer themselves to God, to serve the poor, recognizing them as the living members of His Son, Jesus Christ. Out of the work of these ladies of charity, Vincent, along with Louise de Marillac, fashioned another mode of charitable service for the good of the Church and the benefit of the poor, the Daughters of Charity. In Louise, the saint had a partner compatible in service and like-minded in her vision of the poor. Thus, when they saw that some aristocratic ladies of charity could not perform certain unpleasant tasks of serving the poor and often delegated these duties to their servants, who were sometimes abusive, Vincent suggested offering these opportunities of service to some kind-hearted girls who would not be put off by the coarseness of the poor. 
As this plan prospered and other women offered themselves for this kind of service, Vincent and Louise in time recognized the hand of providence in leading them into a new avenue of service. They worked to give the girls some stability and supervision and some religious and moral instruction. Out of a small core group of three or four young women came the company of the Daughters of Charity. Although the list of Vincent's enterprises is remarkable, he was not always successful in his engagements. For instance, consider Madagascar. Although Vincent was convinced that this mission was right, he did not transform it into the success that he experienced in other enterprises. Forces were against him, what with shipwrecks, disease, and an environment that was sometimes religiously or politically hostile. The mission was not able to take hold until centuries after his death. And not all of his enterprises took off dramatically. Vincent's working style fit the image of the scientist in his laboratory, patiently at work, experimenting, discarding, or confirming his findings. There were probably few eureka moments. He was known for his care, indeed slowness, in coming to decisions, and he sometimes exasperated his associates by not acting as quickly as they would wish. But his reason offered was always a desire to authenticate his decision as being in conformity with divine providence. Slow or fast in executing, dramatic or plain in his style, Vincent probably did not advert to circumstances such as these that attended the beginnings of his various works. As an alchemist, his goal was transformation, that is, a change of the ordinary into something special and important. He accomplished that by inspiring hundreds of men and women of faith and zeal to join him in addressing the ills and injustices in church and society. The marvel is not that he accomplished these wonders, but that he was able to marshal and guide these collaborators so efficiently into a veritable army that swept across 17th century France. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Incension Heritage Podcast. If you have any questions, please send them to mission.depaul at gmail.com. Be sure to check out all the other Vincentian family resources on our website, mission.depaul.edu.